Most painters, said Henri Matisse, look for an exterior light to illuminate them internally, whereas the artist or the poet possesses an interior light, which transforms objects to make a new world of them, sensitive, organized, a living world, which is itself an infallible sign of divinity, a reflection of divinity. For Matisse, the artist doesn't simply reproduce, say, a table, but rather transforms the table, transfigures it, makes a new world of it, precisely by painting, as Matisse once put it, not literally that table, but the emotion it produces upon me. And by way of the painting, then, we can see the table with fresh eyes. Or better, see the world with fresh eyes, the world in the painting and the world around it, so full of tables and emotions and reflections of divinity, and so experience the world more fully, more deeply. One of Matisse's most celebrated paintings during his early period is Open Window Collure, a room framing a window, the window framing a balcony with potted plants and ivy, and the balcony framing a seascape with sailboats anchored near the shore. It's all daring, unexpected colors, but above all, it's a study of transfigured light, an open window into the artist's serene, exuberant vision. In this sense, at their best, paintings and poems change our minds. They help us come to our senses. In the last episode, we explored how, for Jesus, scripture is a kind of palette, a collection of colors with which we can paint the world, interpret it, understand it, communicate about it. In the light reflected by these colors, the everyday is transfigured, suddenly shimmering with new light. Or rather, our everyday ways of looking at the world can shift or turn or fall away, revealing, if only for a moment, the light that was there all along. And as it turns out, Jesus uses this same approach when teaching about his mission, including the meaning of the cross and the essence of salvation. For example, one of the most famous and misunderstood verses in the New Testament is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And to understand it, truly understand it, we have to conceive it, as Jesus did, in the light and color of two classic stories in the Bible's library. The first, a strange, fascinating story of a serpent made of bronze and the second, a harrowing, haunting story from the book of Genesis, the story of Abraham and Isaac. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. We begin in 17th century England. 
In those days, in 17th century English, the word so frequently meant in this way, as in like so or so help me God. In the King James Version of the Bible, then, it made perfect sense to translate the Greek word hutos in this way with the English word so. And that's exactly what the King James Version translators did in John 3.16. But today, we more often use so to mean very or to a large extent, as in I'm so sad or she's so smart. Thus, the verse is often misunderstood today as a statement about the extent or degree of God's love, as if it says, For God loved the world so much that... Whereas, it's actually a statement about the way or pattern of God's love, as in, For God loved the world in this way. For God loved the world in this way. What way? That is the question, and Jesus immediately provides a clue to the answer. Two clues, actually. But first, it's worth highlighting a couple of other ways John 3.16 is often misunderstood today. Here's the line in its entirety. For God loved the world in this way. God gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Now, many Christians today interpret that line as both exclusive and transactional. Exclusive in that, according to this common reading, eternal life will only be given to Christians, to people who believe in Jesus, and transactional in the sense that that belief in Jesus is a kind of payment, a quid pro quo, in order to obtain the prize of eternal life. As if it's saying, if and only if you believe in Jesus, you'll receive that prize, right? It's a reasonable enough reading, actually, on the surface at least, but that's precisely why Jesus couches and delivers the line with reference to two classic stories in Scripture's library, signaling that God's love is neither exclusive nor transactional, but rather the opposite, universal and graceful. So let's look at these two stories, one at a time. Bear in mind, according to John, Jesus is talking here to Nicodemus, a religious leader, and so someone who would have been quite familiar with the scriptural library. Jesus knows his audience. And so immediately before the famous John 3.16, in John 3.15, Jesus references a story from the book of Numbers, in which the Israelites, wandering in the wilderness, complain bitterly against God and Moses. So bitterly, the story goes, that God sends bitter poisonous serpents to slither among them as if to dramatize how twisted and self-destructive their contemptuous complaining actually is. And then, when the people promptly and self-servingly confess and plead with God to save them from the serpents, God directs Moses to fashion a serpent of bronze and lift it up on a pole so that any bitten Israelite can look at the serpent of bronze and live. Think of it. 
an image of the deadly serpent, a manifestation of their poisonous complaints, the very thing from which they sought deliverance, an image of that thing is the remedy. The problem is transfigured, recast in bronze, remade into part of the solution. The menace is reversed into medicine. Look at the serpent of bronze and live. And this strange and ancient story, Jesus says, is a key for understanding what will happen to him. A key for understanding the mystery of the cross, the pole on which Jesus will be lifted up. That's right there in John 3.15. And please note, with the bronze serpent, God doesn't just save some righteous subset of the Israelites, the ones with the right opinions or the ones who seek rescue with sincere contrition. No, God saves all of the Israelites, everyone, as the story puts it. There's no doctrinal test here, no examination, no mandatory purity of heart. On the contrary, the story goes out of its way to portray God as saving precisely those people who bitterly, ungratefully complain with one breath and then self-servingly plead for rescue with the next. God saves them not because of their performance, but despite it. That's the first clue. In the story of the bronze serpent, God's saving work gracefully extends to everyone in the world of the story. And we should understand God's work today, Jesus insists to Nicodemus, hutos, in this way. The second clue is embedded in the next sentence, John 3.16 itself. One of the most prestigious and haunting stories in all of Hebrew Scripture is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is Abraham's only heir, and God has promised Abraham that his lineage, his descendants, will be a great and numerous people. But this promise, of course, opens up a fundamental tension in the story. Is Abraham's faithfulness to God genuine, driven by heartfelt devotion, or is it opportunistic, instrumental, driven by the desire for an impressive legacy. Abraham's behavior in the chapters preceding this story suggests that it may well be the latter. And so God arranges a test, a clarifying ordeal, both simple and terrifying. God has no intention of allowing Isaac to die. The storyteller makes that clear right up front. But God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in order to see if he's willing to do so, and thereby to give up the prospect of a great legacy. Abraham sets out to follow the command, and at the last moment, God intervenes. For our purposes here, two things about this harrowing story are relevant. First, that the whole point of the test is to see if Abraham's devotion is genuine devotion with no strings attached, or if it's instead a disguised transaction, a quid pro quo. I'll be devoted to you as long as you give me a great legacy. And second, that the storyteller here in Genesis pointedly refers to Isaac as your son, your only son, whom you love. 
This repetition and rhetorical emphasis, along with the story's prestige and power, make this phrase, your son, your only son, whom you love, a resonant, radiant shorthand for the story as a whole. And so when Jesus says in John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way, God gave his only son, right? The story of Abraham and Isaac clearly echoes in the background. The analogy, the parallel, is clear. Just as Abraham gave his only son, so God will give Jesus for the love of the world. And just as Abraham's devotion was non-transactional, not a quid pro quo, neither is God's. On the contrary, God's love for the world is a graceful gift, given not because of our behavior, but despite it. No quid pro quo, no preconditions, no strings attached. And sure enough, in the very next verse, John 3:17, as if to drive the point home, Jesus adds that God has sent him not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. The world. For God so loved the world. The Greek word here is cosmos. For God so loved the cosmos. Not to condemn the cosmos, but in order that the cosmos might be saved. In what way does God love the world? In this way, with the love of an artist, maker of heaven and earth, an artist with, as Matisse puts it, an interior light which transforms objects to make a new world of them illuminating and transfiguring even the worst that we can do, even the Roman cross. The worst thing in the world from a Jewish point of view in first century Palestine, remaking it into part of our salvation, recast in bronze, in gold, in silver, menace into medicine, a cross into a tree of life. In what way does God love the world? In this way, not transactionally, but gracefully, with a love that seeks no quid pro quo, but instead enters our lives with sheer generosity. A love inviting, but not requiring anything in return. A graceful love for every one of us, no matter who we are or what we've done. In what way does God love the world? in this way, not exclusively, but universally, with a love not only for us, but for everyone, for all creation, for the cosmos, for God loved the cosmos in this way. From the widest frame all the way down to the smallest creature, the smallest part of a creature, a new world filled with color and light, drenched in divine love and joy, if we have eyes to see. Sabbath eyes, we might say, walking alongside Wendell Berry in the woods, seeing all things new. In one of his Sabbath poems, Berry puts it this way. Again I resume the long lesson. How small a thing can be pleasing. 
how little in this hard world it takes to satisfy the mind and bring it to its rest. Within the ongoing havoc, the woods this morning is almost unnaturally still. Through stalled air, unshadowed light, a few leaves fall of their own weight. The sky is gray. It begins in mist, almost at the ground, and rises forever. The trees rise in silence, almost natural, but not quite, almost eternal, but not quite. What more did I think I wanted? Here is what has always been. Here is what will always be. Even in me, the maker of all this returns in rest. Even to the slightest of his works, a yellow leaf slowly falling and is pleased. Will all things return to God in the end? The whole cosmos caught up in the grand mystery of joy and redemption? One way of answering this question is to ask another, how could it be otherwise? How could the God of grace, the God who loves unconditionally, impose conditions on salvation? Or save some, but not all, of God's beloved creatures? In the end, we cannot say. The scope of salvation is God's business, not ours. But it is ours to hope and to pray and even to trust that the divine artist, the maker of heaven and earth, will remake them too, transfiguring the whole, making all things new. And we do have hints, you know, clues here and there. The joyful, mind-changing colors of Matisse, for example. The window out to the balcony, out to the open sea. Or the gentle, challenging poems of Wendell Berry, including this one, a meditation on the cosmos in the common. Learn by little the desire for all things, which perhaps is not desire at all, but undying love, which perhaps is not love at all, but gratitude for the being of all things, which perhaps is not gratitude at all, but the Maker's joy in what is made, the joy in which we come to rest. Jesus, Wendell, and Henri is a miniseries by Strange New World, a SALT project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton. Music is by Pablo J. Garman, Blue Dot Sessions, and Epidemic Sound. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. 
And if you'd like to go deeper, SALT has devotionals for Lent based on the work of Wendell Berry and Henri Matisse, which include more details, activities, links to the paintings, and more. You can find them both in the store at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.